in front of you. Let me give you a little bit of context before we jump into this story. Uh, This is a season in the ministry of Jesus that is both exciting and challenging. It's about two years into his public ministry. It's exciting because it's probably the point in time where Jesus and his disciples are most popular in that there are tens of thousands of people following them around the countryside. But it's also challenging. And it's challenging because as Jesus is gaining popularity, the religious leaders are becoming increasingly hostile towards him. And the crowds are also becoming more and more confused about his purpose and about his mission. And the disciples, though they are loyal, they are very slow to understand who Jesus is. So it's with that context that we now approach this story in verse 22 right after Jesus feeds the 5,000. So let's give attention to the reading of God's word. It says, Immediately he, being Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's stand and let's sing of this wondrous love that we see demonstrated in this passage. Have any of you ever done anything that seemed like a good idea in the beginning, only for it to turn out to be not so much? Uh, It sort of happened to me this morning, actually, in the first service. I got confused about the worship times. I know, I've been here for over a year now. I should know. I got confused in thinking that the first service ended at 9.15 or uh, 10.15 instead of 10.30. So I cut out my entire third point this morning. So it was very un-Presbyterian. The first service got a two-point sermon. Don't worry, you're getting three points today, so don't freak out. I kind of imagine Peter felt something similar to this in this story. He thought it was initially a good idea to get out of the boat, and it probably was in in some respects, only to end up sinking. And after they had worshipped in the boat, I can only imagine later that night or that morning at the campfire, I can imagine Andrew and John giving Peter a hard time and you know, you really messed that one up. You got out of the boat and you started sinking. But if I were Peter, I would have responded, well, hey, at least I got out of the boat. You know, like, when was the last time anybody else walked on water? So we want to look at this in three parts this morning. And we want to look at the confusion in this passage about Jesus. We want to look at the revelation about Jesus. And then finally, we want to look at the adoration or the response when the disciples and those in the boat clearly saw who Jesus was. So first, let's consider the confusion Now, it's quite understandable that the religious leaders and the crowds were confused about Jesus at this point in his ministry. 
But the disciples, they had been following around Jesus for two years, spending a lot of time with him, yet they were still very confused about the person and the work and the identity of Jesus. If you're familiar with the Bible, you may even recall the story that the disciples would sometimes argue about who is going to be the greatest in the Lord's kingdom, who's going to sit on his right hand, and who's going to sit on his left hand. And so you can imagine that in the story right before Jesus walking on the water, just imagine this, put yourself in the sandals of the disciples that you have left your job and you've been following around this Jesus guy for two years and then all of a sudden tens of thousands of people begin to follow him. This crowd gathers, they're hungry, he takes a few cans of tuna fish, a loaf of bread from a child's lunchbox and feeds an army. And then this army wants to make him king to march on Rome. You can imagine the excitement of the disciples. Finally, Jesus is going to come to power. And you know what that means? When Jesus becomes the commander of this army, then I'm going to get a position of authority. I'm going to be appointed to his cabinet. And Jesus knows that his disciples are getting caught up in this contagious disease of establishing an earthly kingdom, preventing Jesus from doing what he came to do. And it even gets more confusing for the disciples. Notice a few details in the story. In verse 22, immediately after he feeds this army, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. The text there is one of of forceful language that Jesus made the disciples get in the boat. Now you can just imagine, they would have been buzzing about what they had just seen happen. They would have, did you see that bread? Did you see how many people we fed? Did you see that they want to make Jesus king? This is awesome. And Jesus says, go get in the boat, leave. It's kind of like if you just won a huge sporting event, the Super Bowl, and then your coach comes to you and says, don't talk to any reporters, go get on the bus, we're going home. They would have kind of been like, what's going on here? Why are we being sent away from this exciting crowd? So they would have been confused about that. Now, notice also something else. Not only did he put them in a boat, he sent them into a storm. Uh, Mark's account of this story tells us they were about three to four miles out And they were getting beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. So not only did Jesus put them into a boat, but he said, I want you to go out in the boat and go into the storm. Now, several of the disciples would have been sailors, and so they would have been accustomed to rough waters. But many of them, the tax collectors and others, may not have been used to being out on the boat in a storm. Kind of like me. First time I ever got on a boat was in Savannah, Georgia, uh, going down to the Caribbean. We got off uh, onto the ocean at some point, and a small storm came upon the boat with some decently high waves, and I got sick as a dog. And so all I could do was just sit on the back of the boat, and just for hours upon hours, it's that constant pounding, the, the motor's loud, and all I could do was dry heave on the back of the boat. So you can just imagine the disciples not used to being out on the ocean at night, are not feeling so good about what's happening at this point. Notice in verse 25, it tells us it was already the fourth watch. Now, that's according to Roman time. And so that would have been between the hours of 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So if Jesus sent them out in the boat, sent them into a storm on the night before, and it's now between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., they've actually been out on this boat for about nine hours. 
And they might have initially had the sails up until the waters got rough. But for hours upon hours, they've been straining at their oars, trying to keep the bow of their boat pointed in the right direction so that they don't get overturned. Now, in the midst of all these details, it's interesting that it doesn't say that the disciples were yet terrified. They weren't terrified until they looked up and they saw a ghost, or what they thought was a ghost. They saw a figure walking on the water. And it's at that point that we are told that they were terrified, that they actually screamed out in fear. Understandably so. If you're out tired on a boat in the middle of the night and you see some figure walking towards you, most of them probably thought they were about to die. But we don't even understand how afraid they really were. Because you see, during this time, the Israelites, they were not great sailors. And at this time as well, the ocean or the sea especially was seen as a picture of chaos. It was a picture of something that was very dangerous, and understandably so. Because if you're on land, there might be a natural disaster every so often, like an earthquake. But you feel a lot safer on land. When you go out on the sea, and especially the Sea of Galilee, you never know when a storm is going to approach that could overturn your boat. And then also, when you're out on the sea, you can't see the bottom. You don't know what can come up from the deep towards you. I know a lot of you have been watching Shark Week recently, so you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) But my wife, you know, she she doesn't even like swimming in a lake because she can't see the bottom. And so imagine during this time, sorry, honey from Florida. I'll pay for that one later. But especially during this time, the sea was seen as this picture of chaos and danger and unpredictability. So to be out on it in the middle of the night in a storm and to see this strange figure walking, it's very understandable that they were terrified. But not only were they confused, they had a much deeper problem In Mark's account of the story, in Mark chapter 6, he tells us this. When Jesus got into the boat, it says, They were astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. I want you to see this. Because as confused as they were, they had a far deeper problem. They had a spiritual problem. Their hearts were hardened. And they were confused about the identity of Jesus. Now, when Jesus says you have a hard heart, you take it serious. Because in Matthew chapter 4, he called the religious leaders and the sinners and the hypocrites, he called them hard-hearted. Now think back to the Old Testament. Can you think of anyone who God gave us that description of him? How about Pharaoh? Pharaoh was described as having a hard heart. And here's the first thing that I want you to see from this text this morning and apply to your life. Jesus is telling the disciples that it is possible to be in his inner circle for two years and to be hard-hearted towards him, that you may have the same heart as Pharaoh had. Now let me apply that to us, especially for those of you who have grown up in the church your entire life or have come to McLean for decades upon decades There is a warning here that we can come to church, we can sing songs, we can pray prayers, we can lead Sunday school, we can volunteer and serve our time, and we can still be hard-hearted towards Jesus. 
We can be doing all the things that look like we understand who Christ is, but completely miss his mission and purpose and identity in our lives. And you know what Jesus does? Pastorally and lovingly, he sends the disciples out into the storm. Why? Because he wants them to see their hard-heartedness. Do you know what it means to be hard-hearted? It means that you love something in life more than you love God. And so Jesus sends the disciples out into the storm so that in their fears, they will realize in whom or what they are trusting so that they will see him more clearly. You see what I mean? When you understand that life is unpredictable or uncontrollable, the natural response is fear. When we recognize that we are not in control of our lives and the things that we have looked to to give us peace, when we see that those are simply an illusion and a mirage, then fear enters our hearts. There's a guy by the name of Larry Lawden. He's a philosopher of science, and he's spent a decade studying risk management. And he writes that we live in a society that is so fear-driven that he has come up with a term called risk lock, a condition like gridlock, which leaves us unable to do anything or go anywhere. He summarizes literature on risk management in 19 principles. And don't worry, I'm not going to go through all 19 of them this morning. But the very first principle that he teaches is the simplest. Everything is risky. He says, if you're looking for absolute safety, you chose the wrong species. You can stay home in bed, but that may make you one of the half million Americans who require emergency room treatment each year for injuries sustained while falling out of bed. (laughs) He says, you can cover your windows, but that may make you one of the 10 people a year who accidentally hang themselves on the cords of their Venetian blinds. He says, you can hide your money in a mattress but that may make you one of the tens of thousands of the people who go to the emergency room each year because of wounds caused by handling money, everything from paper cuts to hernias. What prompts fear? It's being out of control. And how do you respond to fear in your life? If you're an intellectual, your solution is more knowledge. If you're a romantic, then all you need is more love. And if you're a warrior, then buck up and try harder. What is your solution to fear in your life? Learn enough, love enough, hold on long enough. You know, that really doesn't work, does it? And when you tell someone else that, you can watch them respond. The great thing is, is that we as Christians have a greater solution to fear Jesus doesn't approach the disciples out on the boat and say, hey, don't worry. I watched the weather forecast. It's going to blow over in about an hour. It's not as bad as you think. Just calm down, row harder. What does he do? He comes and he calms the storm and he reveals more of who he is. And that's the second point, the revelation in verse 22 or verse 27. Jesus approaches them and he spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I Do not be afraid. Now, in our ESV Bibles, we will actually miss a very important phrase in this passage. 
You see, the literal translation of what Jesus says to the disciples is this. He says, cheer up, do not be afraid, I am. Okay, I'm going to come back to that in just a minute. Remember that phrase. There's something in Mark's account of this story that Matthew doesn't use, but I want to draw attention to it. It says that Jesus had intended to pass by them, that when he sent the disciples out on the boat, it says that he intended to pass by them in the night. Now, initially, that sounds kind of strange to me. You know, is Jesus just showing off? It's kind of like go off, you know, across the sea, and then he beats them over there, and it's like, hi, guys. That was a cool trick, wasn't it? You know, or, you know, it's kind of strange. What was he thinking? He's like, just going to walk by them, and so the disciples are like rowing, and then Jesus just comes like gliding by. <laughs> you know, like, what, what, what's the point of saying that he was going to pass by the disciples? That's also a phrase from the Old Testament. See, Matthew was written to the Jews, and so Matthew would use over 48 direct uh, quotations from the Old Testament, and he would also use a lot of phrases pointing out that Jesus is the foretold Messiah from the Old Testament. And so Matthew chooses his phrases very carefully in order so he could pass by them. Exodus chapter 33, when God was calling Moses to lead the Israelites... Moses says, I'm not going to go unless what? Unless you show me your glory. So God puts Moses in the cleft of the rock. And what happens? The glory of the Lord passed by him. You see, theologians have a word for this. They call it theophanies, where it's uh, just this quintessential expression of God's glory, especially revealed to someone. Think of like the burning bush and Moses. There's a New Testament picture of this as well. Like when Stephen in Acts chapter 7 is about to be stoned, Stephen looks up into heaven and he sees what? He sees a picture of the glory of Jesus. So what Jesus is doing in this moment for the disciples, he's training them He's preparing them. And the way that he prepares his disciples is to reveal more of himself to his disciples. He revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. And how did he identify himself to Moses? Who shall I tell Pharaoh that is sending me? And he says, you tell him that I am sent you. So when Jesus strolls up on the disciples and says, do not be afraid, I am. Do you know what he is saying? He is saying, I am. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. I am the Lord of the storm. I am the one of Psalm 77. I am the one of Isaiah 43. And when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. I am the Lord of the host. I am the Lord of the storm. Do not be afraid. Take courage. It is I. See, it's the same thing that Jesus did in the transfiguration. Why did, he, why did he reveal more of his glory to the disciples? It was to prepare them for suffering and for discipleship. It was for their growth in the Lord. I think C.S. Lewis, in his book, Prince Caspian, describes this really well. One of the children comes up to Aslan, who's the Christ figure of the Narnia series. And uh, Aslan's been gone for a while. And when he comes back, the little girl says, Aslan, you're bigger. And that is because you're older, little one, answered Aslan. And she says, not because you are. He says, I am not. 
But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. So it is with us and God. Peter clearly saw a bigger Jesus after this moment. You see, we as the disciples and followers of Jesus, we need to see the Jesus who confronted Pharaoh and the one who terrified the disciples. Let me apply this to you in two ways. First, personally, okay? If your view of Jesus is small, you will constantly be terrified. And if your view of Jesus is Lord, Lord of the storm, then your fears will be removed. It's really hard, isn't it, to trust Jesus in difficult circumstances because we don't understand what he's doing. We don't understand why he allows certain hardships. We don't understand why he sends us into the storms or allows the storms to encompass us. And we don't understand why he even waits until the fourth watch to come and rescue us. Why, Jesus, why? You see, I may not be able to tell you why all the things happen in your life, but I can tell you why not. It's not because Jesus doesn't love you, because we already know that while we were still sinners, enemies, Jesus laid down his life for us. So the circumstances that we go into in life, we know it's not because he doesn't love us. And there's a really great gospel message here. You know, so many times we focus on Peter in this story, but this is the only gospel account that includes Peter walking on water and sinking. Mark was actually Peter's companion, and he recorded a lot of the stories of Peter. And in Mark's account of this story, he didn't tell about Peter sinking. Maybe Peter said, hey, you can just kind of omit that little part of the story. But I think the point is, is the main point of this story is not Peter. It's Jesus. You see, Peter walks out, and then he walks out into the storm. He's gazing at Jesus. Nothing changes. But he looks away from Jesus at the wind, and he begins to sink. But what happens? Does he drown? Does he die? No. Jesus comes up, raises him up, and puts him back in the boat. You see, Peter didn't sink even though he had weak faith. He took his eyes off Jesus, but Jesus never took his eyes off Peter. You see, all those whom the Father has given to Jesus, none can be snatched out of his hand. Even if you have a weak faith, it's enough faith. I heard a preacher talking about that this past week. He was telling the story of the Israelites passing through the Red Sea. And the the story is, is that there was a wall of water on the left and there was a wall of water on the right. And the Israelites walked across dry land while the Egyptians were going to pursue them. And this one pastor told the story, he said, you can just imagine that some of the Israelites are walking through this wall of water, and some of the Israelites are going like, yeah, we're God's chosen people, we got this, this is awesome, Egyptians don't have a chance, they're going through it with strong faith, and yet others are probably walking through a little more timid, looking at both sides and say, I'm not sure what's going to happen, I'm not sure if we're going to make it, I'm not sure if we're going to make it. And then he says, but who was saved? All of them those with weak faith or strong faith, because it wasn't the quality or the quantity of their faith that saved them. It was the object of their faith. So even though Peter's faith was weak, it was still stronger than the other disciples in the boat because he got out of the boat. But what saved him was not the strength of his faith, but it was the faithfulness of Jesus to him. Friends, that's the gospel that we can trust God because he is trustworthy. 
Now let me apply this to the church. I want you to see this. We see this pattern in the Bible and in this story that before we are called to do, we are called to see. Okay? Before we are called to do, we are called to see. We are called to see Jesus. All right. Third service application time. All right. I'm not comparing the third service to being out on a storm on the sea or standing before Pharaoh when we're just changing our worship times by 30 or 45 minutes. However, the same principle is true of us, that even when we go into this next season, we are to have no other gods before us. We must fix our gaze on Christ and Christ alone. Friends, you know, James and I have a really close relationship. And I want to tell you this, that James leads the staff really well in this regard, that the whole time is as we've been talking about the third service, he's just impressed upon all of us that the point of this is to make room so that more people can come to know Jesus. His eyes are fixed on Jesus. And it's not about expanding his kingdom. It's about being faithful to the Great Commission. We are very clear about this. There is no Christianity without Christ. There is no McLean Presbyterian Church without Jesus. It's on a plaque up here that none of you ever see unless you give testimonies. But it says, sir, we wish to see Jesus. It's all about Jesus. The Christian faith begins and ends with the knowledge of the Lord. Christianity is Christ. And the whole point of the Gospels is to portray Jesus. And our whole purpose at McLean Presbyterian Church is to make Jesus famous and to glorify God and to spread the good news. We may increase our number of worship services. We may grow our membership by even over 200, what we've done over the last 12 months. But, and all these things are good things, we may add all of this structure, all of these people. But if we are not making disciples of Jesus Christ, people who are growing in their knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then it's all worthless. You understand? Numerical growth does not necessarily mean gospel growth. So one of the things that we have to be reminded that even in this season, after successful ministry, our focus is all about Jesus, and we must not lose sight of that. So, Third and final point, when we see this Jesus, when we gaze at the Lord of the storm, when we see his power and his love, what's the only proper response? Well, look at Peter. He says, Lord, if it's you, command me. Oh, there's a whole sermon there. You don't understand the law of God until you understand the person and identity of Jesus. So many things will not make sense in the Christian life until you understand he's the Lord of the universe. But notice what happens when he gets back in the boat. The sea calms down, and what's their response? They worship Jesus. You know, in all these situations, when Moses sees the glory of the Lord, what does he do? Take off your sandals, for you are on holy ground. It's kind of a common theme of MPC the last few months. When we really see Jesus the glory of God, we are both unmasked, we see our sinfulness because he is so holy, but we are affirmed because even though we are sinful, he died for us. And that leads us to a response of worship. 
Now, why did Jesus walk on the water? That was one of the questions that I asked myself this week. If these are supposed to be displays of the way things used to be and the way things ought to be, it seems like walking on water is just showing off. But then you study this idea of water and the seas in Scripture, and you can go back all the way to Genesis in the beginning of creation. You see what? The Spirit hovering over the waters, the picture of chaos, and He forms the world and provides order to chaos. It even makes sense when you think about the flood with Noah. You know, uh, the, the flood of judgment, some have called decreation because in our sinfulness, the creation is actually moving backwards and falling apart instead of being created. And it's this same idea that Jesus is demonstrating that he has power over chaos, over danger, over the unknown. It's a strange thing in Revelation 21.1 when it says, in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no more sea. And you think, wait a minute, I like sunsets, I like the beach, I like seashells. Does it mean we're not going to have a literal sea in heaven? No, it means there will be no more chaos because the Lord of the storm is here. Friends, we need to remember this. It's all about worship. It's about worshiping Christ for what he's done, glorifying God. And it's easy to take our eyes off that ball. Notice Jesus. Even he, after the success of his ministry, must have been tempted to bring in his earthly kingdom in a different way. But what does he do at the beginning of this story? He goes up on the mountain to what? To pray and to be with his father. Friends, this is our master plan for taking over Washington, D.C. and the world. We're going to pray, and we're going to talk about Jesus. There it is. There's our simple recipe. As we move to three services, we have no great master plan other than to pray and to talk about Jesus. You know, as we see more and more of Jesus, we will be compelled to make sacrifices. One of the great questions I love in my life is, when was the last thing that you did because you loved Jesus? Or what was the last thing that you did because you loved Jesus? And what was the last thing you stopped doing because you loved Jesus? Peter got out of the boat and walked into the storm to be near Jesus. I was thinking about this. We're willing to make sacrifices for things we loved. I'm going to earn points back with Kelly on this one. When I was engaged to Kelly, I made sacrifices because I wanted to be married to her because I loved her. So what did I do? Every night, I would go, or as often as I was allowed, I would go donate plasma for an hour and work in a cabinet shop all night long to save up enough money for an engagement ring. Why? Because I loved her, and I was willing to make sacrifices, and I don't even like blood, and to pump my hand for an hour. So I always joke with Kelly that literally she has a blood diamond. (laughs) When we see... How much Jesus loves us and our love for him grows. We want to be in relationship with him and we want others to be in relationship with him and we will do anything, even walk into a storm to be near him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, help us to fix our gaze on Christ and Christ alone that amid a world that can seem so confusing, 
full of challenge and difficulty and chaos. Help us to see the Lord of the storm, to fix our gaze upon Jesus and remain steadfast and anchored. Father, help us to be more faithful because you are faithful to us. Father, we pray for this third service even. And we pray that as you are growing our numbers, you are growing our programs, Father, help us to fix our eyes upon the author and perfecter of our faith, the Alpha and the Omega. Help us to keep our gaze on Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen.